0: Good morning, friends. It's good to be here again. Uh, It's good to be back in this little space that we've cultivated. I'm wondering, Angie, how many days over 100 degrees now have we managed to accumulate in a row? Anybody? Anybody know? Angie stays in the air conditioning. That's how she keeps the vocal cords nice and and clean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many days, how many consecutive days over 100? I don't know, Lamar, I've lost count. Yeah, something like 400, yeah. In case you think we're listening down here in Austin while you whine, Michigan, Iowa, Illinois, Connecticut, Chile, Australia, London, Cape Coral, I don't care where, Portland, Northwest, Arkansas, in case you think we're listening when you whine about how hot it is, we're not listening, are we, Sam? We don't hear you, la la la. You won't get any sympathy out of us down here in God's country because we wrote the book on hot, apparently. You might be curious to know that I actually haven't rejected the ideas of my fundamentalist youth about hell and eternal hot torture, also known as Bikram Yoga, for those of you in the room. I haven't rejected my thoughts on that because Rob Bell, Uncle Rob, gave me permission to reject it. No, no, no. It's just that I believe that down here in Austin, we're getting our white hot purgatory out of the way now. That's all. It's not, not that complicated. Who am I kidding? It's, this is a joke in our house. I love the heat. That's the truth. I was born on an island. I was raised somewhere between southwest Florida, El Paso, Texas, and the Pacific coast of central Mexico. I'm the dad who walks outside and says, ain't this beautiful, girls? If we can stand this, we can stand anything, right? Yeah, kids don't listen to such nonsense. They stopped a long time ago. So this is why we work two jobs, so we can create inside perfect atmospheres of 70 degrees. And we can wait patiently, right, until we can mock Wisconsin in mid-December by taking our dinner outside. In shirt sleeves, Wisconsin, in case you wondered. So we'll get even, Colorado. We always do. We just don't have much to brag about in August. It's just plain hot down here. Besides, hot is a matter of contrast anyway. It's hot outside. But it's not nearly as hot as it is around the kitchen table where we're all trying to decide who's going to be in charge of supervising the kids' education now that schools aren't going back, right? That's the real heat. You know what I'm talking about. You know why we still have work to do from home? Anyway, Anyway, that's the weather report from Austin, so I hope, hope you enjoy that. <laughs> so we've been looking at the parables of Jesus this summer. We've titled this series, The Parables, Rescuing Jesus from Historic Christianity. We've been recovering our imaginations from the flannel graph ordeals of our youth, and you'd have to be Baptist to know what I'm talking about, and it happened in a basement, Right? We've been reclaiming these stories that Jesus told as subversive material designed to help us question everything which we were going to do anyway. You don't let's just be honest. You know, this might be my favorite t-shirt of all time. Be sure you can get is that on the screen? Can you get that a little higher? You got it? That's my favorite shirt of all time. And if it wasn't, if I wasn't committed to the collar at this point in my life, I probably would wear this under some denim jacket. And in fact, the sound guy offered me $20 cold cash to take off the collar and put on the t-shirt. That's of course uh, not going to happen seeing that this shirt is a medium. And uh, the way I explain the fact that I look fat in it is most likely this shirt shrunk, but you get what I'm saying. But it's funny, the face of Jesus saying, I never said that. It's funny because it's true. You see, we have to do actual work to rescue the real teachings of Jesus from the horse crappery Christianity has made of those ideas. That's a technical term in case you needed to know. So that's what we're up to down here, where in August you can literally cook a chicken on the hood of your car in traffic. There's a lot of things Jesus never said that we're just now getting around to tossing. So today I thought we might lighten things up a bit. We've been doing some hard work. You know, we might lighten it up by asking ourselves the most important question we'll ever ask ourselves. How's that for light fare? Anybody in the game? Sam shot a little video of our text, and so Sam's going to read our parable today. We'll be right back.
1: Hey, I'm Sam, and I'll be reading today's parable from Luke 15, verses 1 through 7. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? What? Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does Which one of you does not? Which one of you does? What? Yes, I've read this story before, but I'm deconstructing, so I don't trust it anymore. I don't think this is a metaphor. And we don't do well with the word lost, historically. I think we should leave this one be. This is a story about sheep, not people. Shepherds, not teachers, coaches, parents, CEOs, camp counselors, leaders of actual creatures, all of whom understand that 99% is a very good grade. Strong retention rate, high accuracy, clear majority, a very full audience. I mean, talk about scarcity mindset, 99 is complete enough. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. Yeah, this is about sheep, because with people, it's different. Like at the summer camp, I was legally responsible for the safety of 200 kids. So at 8.03, teachers would text me who was missing from their 8 o'clock class. And it was my job to run all over campus, searching bunk beds and Starbucks, to find the little jerk who didn't show up. And when I found them, I was instructed to yell at them. Hand it to him, Make it so they'd never get lost again. You could tell someone was found by the rage in my voice. Aren't we rewarding being lost if all we do is rejoice? And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. People don't know their neighbors anymore. This is definitely about sheep. Don't you think? Wish you could talk back. And church wasn't on TV. Everything's on TV a tease. It's like you can get this close to the flock and zoom in on your class, hear your niece and mute your boss, share progress, watch pain, like peace, click change, and turn the camera on grief, but you can't be with it. You can't be with anything. But this is a story about a sheep. A sheep who couldn't feel her pack. It's 8.03 and she's not where she's supposed to be. 804, 805, there goes July. I can't find the 99 or the shepherd. And I can't do, the sheep can't do a single thing that makes her feel found. It's a million degrees, but the sheep can't even work out. I feel bad for the sheep. sucks to be lost. If I were, I'm not sure I'm somebody that somebody'd be trying to find. You can only be lost if someone first called you mine. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven, this is the last verse, verse 7, over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. It's a confusing sentence in a story about sheep. Is somebody looking for me?
0: Thank you, Sam. I wish Sam could read all the Bible stories to me all the time with all the... I love it. Thank you. Thank you for that. True story. I spent some of my younger years as a missionary kid, oops, as a missionary kid in Mexico in the state of Michoacán, which meant that we had to learn Spanish, which some of us became more proficient at than others, and I'll let you guess who in my family. Anyway, I once sat through a whole sermon that my dad preached about a lost honeybee. You know the story, the one where the shepherd left the 99 honeybees behind in the wilderness. He carried his lost, tired, frightened honeybee on his shoulders all the way back to the party he threw in her honor of her finding. And some of you can begin to connect the dots. You're guessing where I'm going here. You see, the Spanish word for sheep is oveja, which sounds a lot like the Spanish word for honeybee, which is abeja. (laughs) And so my dad was known for stuff like this. And it usually fell on the shoulders of my sister to correct him in real time, often by raising her hand in the middle of the sermon and saying, Hey, Dad, I don't think that word means what you think that word means. Yeah, talk about awkward moments. My family, you guys, if there would have been YouTube channels dedicated to family drama, we would have, we would have been influencers. We really would have. We would have owned it. Anyway, if you hang out for very long in the circles of Jesus and the circles that he creates, you'll discover that finding lost things is a cornerstone of his teaching. It's a common theme. You remember, lost sheep, lost coins, lost sons and daughters, etc. Now, we've talked a lot this summer about being careful when we ascribe roles in these parables. God is not always the landlord or the master or the king or the rich guy. Hell, God is not always even the male figure at all in these stories. And we aren't always the protagonists or the heroes, sometimes we're all of those roles alternatively in the narrative. Now, in general, I think we squeeze these stories too much by thinking we just automatically know who's who. Here's one, here's one clue. When, we, when Sam read the story of the parable of the lost sheep, how many of you heard the words uh, Pharisees and scribes and thought, oh yeah, that's the church we left, right? We think we know who's who, and sometimes we miss things. That being said... I do think today's parable, or the pair of parables, if you take them in context, the lost sheep goes with the lost coin, and it also goes with the prodigal son. But if you take them in context, actually, I think these do describe something important about who God is and what God is like. As we've taken another look at these old stories, I'm beginning to see how they undermine our primary religious obsession, which is, namely, who's behaving, who's getting it right, and who's on the inside. These parables are stories about the extravagant love of God and who belongs. And we know the answer to the question. If we can stomach the ramifications, who belongs to God? Everyone belongs to God. So, which begs an interesting question. If we belong to God, exactly how are we lost? Why are all these stories about lost and found? How does the source and sustainer of all things misplace any thing? You see, God has always known where to find us, and so we've never been lost in any traditional murder mystery Netflixy sort of way. That's a new word. That's for you, Arkansas. And I don't accept that lost means that God, for whatever reason, no longer had access to us. I mean, you can flash your Reformed theology credentials if it makes you feel safe and it makes you feel better, and you can claim that God is sovereign and that he was rendered, you know, he, he rend, he's, he's sovereign over all things. But if God was rendered powerless somehow by our choices or our sin, how much sense does that actually make? You see, we've never been inaccessible to God, have we? This no longer feels right either. He's always been willing to see us in our original goodness when he looks at us. And so lost can't mean inaccessible because of something that we did. So then, how do we make sense of all this lost and found stuff in the parables of Jesus? Well, this is a story with all the usual elements, most of the usual players. I mean, in the frame here, we have the angry insiders demanding to know with what authority Jesus erases their exclusive access to the center. We have the outsiders, the tax collectors and sinners. Everyone loves to hate. You know the ones, the ones that have their backs against the wall, as Howard Thurman might describe. And we have a party Oh, don't forget the party heaven throws when the wayward let themselves be found by unending relentless love, by unconditional love. So where do we fit in here? Which character are we? Earlier in Luke, he mentions this idea, those who seek will find. And in general, we might be tempted to believe that we are the seekers. And because we are so diligent and such diligent seekers that we are also the finders. But I think these lost and found stories go a different direction entirely. These are stories about objects lost, objects desired. These are stories about objects found. The object seems to be interchangeable. The architecture of the story of the lost coin and the lost sheep is almost identical. It's the same basic storyline. God is a shepherd seeking the wayward sheep. God is a mother in charge of a household searching for the misplaced coin. God is a father who leaves the door open when his son returns, when he chooses to come home. But he also leaves the caterers and the mariachis on speed dial while he waits. Basically the same story. You see, these stories describe God, but they primarily describe his obsession with lost objects which might be why the religious minds always strain to understand Jesus, because religious, devout, pious people are used to being the seekers in the stories they tell themselves about themselves. They are the seekers, they are the finders, they are the ones who achieve God's approval by obedience and discipline and great attention to detail. But if you are in the mood to trust your vicar today, dear friend, allow me to suggest to you that you are not the seeker in these stories. So much as you are the salt. You are the sheep. You are the coin. You are the prodigal child. You have always been the one being sought. You have always been the desire of God. He has always been unwilling to stop his relentless pursuit of having you back. We are not the seekers who found God. We are the ones who were found by God. And in case your mind is rushing already to the many reasons that this cannot be true, to the list of things that you have done or that you have not done somehow, to the fear that disqualifies you from God's love before you, short-circuit and tune me out. Let me remind you that this story was told by Jesus to justify his welcome, his affirmation, ultimately his obsession with the wayward, the curious, those who misbehaved and took advantage So what then is our role? It's not very complicated, but neither is it easy to accept. You see, we have to allow ourselves to be found. One word for this is repentance. But given the way that that word has been used to inflict so much trauma and so much shame, let me stick with the metaphor at hand and summarize repentance this way. The simple act of allowing ourselves to be found. You don't believe me? Remember remember the rehearsed apology of the prodigal, the one chock full of shame and smallness and guilt? The same apology that the son wasn't even permitted to speak out loud because his father was so willing to accept him unconditionally. Now, of course, repentance implies a turn towards goodness, back towards love. It isn't passive, but as it turns out, allowing yourself to be found is hard work to This is our role. If only it was so easy, as easy as it sounds. It isn't. You know what I think? I think relinquishing the heroic role of seeker in these stories we tell ourselves about ourselves is what bothers us the most. We can barely conceive of an arrangement in which we are simply sought because we are so deeply desired. We are the lost object in these stories. We are not the ones who do the finding. Take a moment and let that unwind you. Let that wash over your anxiety, over your fear, over your shame, over your desire to perform. Now, mostly these days, when the subject of lost things comes up around here at ANC, it's in direct reference to faith, to the blind faith of our youth that so many of us have somehow lost, lost Faith is the natural byproduct of the deconstruction of our faith, which is just another word for discipleship. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. But hear me today. Whatever happens in your spiritual journey, the one thing you cannot, the one thing you must not lose is the awareness that you have always been and will always be the object being sought by God replace every other conclusion, undo every other certainty, cling white knuckles to this one truth, you are what heaven seeks. This is the gospel today. But we haven't yet completed the frame. Remember, there was a mixed audience when Jesus was speaking these stories. Jesus was speaking to sinners and tax collectors. They were present. They were always present in the crowds that Jesus assembled. But there were also Pharisees and scribes because they mattered too, deeply. And while the sinners and the outcasts had their work cut out for them as they tried to reimagine themselves as the objects that had been sought, the Pharisees and the scribes had to learn to rejoice, had to lighten up, had to throw a party, or at the very least be allowed to enter welcome themselves into the party that heaven was throwing for the very ones they hated and excluded. This was their work to learn to party. So here we come face to face with God as seeker, with God as hunter, with God as pursuer, relentless, tireless finder of what he or she loves. We have never been unfindable. We have always been right here and God has always been pursuing us. We have always, already been found by love. By God. Just in case we needed one more image of the extravagance of heaven's love for us, we are offered this small detail in the story. The wayward sheep, so exhausted from wandering, isn't even asked to assist in her, in her own rescue. If it were me, and I had to leave the 99 in the wilderness alone, taking on that risk, I'd make that dang sheep walk all the way home on her own two feet. But the shepherd carries the lost sheep on his shoulders back to the party thrown in her honor. Love does the work of coming home for both seeker and sought. Can you get your head around this, that, that truth this morning? So I don't know who you are in these stories or who you tell yourself you are. You know the ones I'm talking about, the stories you whisper sometimes even scream at yourself under your breath, in your mind, when no one's listening, during the dark nights of the soul. And I've said this a hundred times in the seven years that I've pastored this little church. These inside narratives that we tell ourselves, these inside voices, these stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and who we are, when no one is listening, these inner loops are the fertile soil the gospel is trying so desperately to take root in if we can only allow it. Oh, church, what comfort might we find if we just stepped off the soapboxes, put down the boxing gloves, and relaxed into the one who pursues us, the one who has never not pursued us. I love double negative sentences. I feel so rebellious when I say them. It's so much better than saying the one who has always pursued us. The one who has never not been in relentless pursuit of us. What if we could just relax into those arms? Let me repeat that idea to see if it might settle a little deeper into your body, into your mind, maybe into your belly, into your spirit. Here it is. God has never not pursued you. And you know I'm right. We can all tell stories about the how and the when. I could take you back and 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 tell you stories about God rescuing me from calamity and all those things, we can make sense of the how and the when, but we struggle to make sense of the why. Why are you so delightful to God? What is it about you that woos Him? How could something so small and frail, so given to wonder, so unwilling to yield, so bent on learning the hard way, so shaped by anger and rage, so convinced it can't be found? How could someone like me... And someone like you make God run anywhere to find us. What is it about you that makes God pursue? Oh, don't look at your list of accomplishments, your honors and accolades. Don't look at the wall behind your desk where the paper hangs that proves you fulfilled the requirements to get the degree. Don't look at the accomplishments of your children or their children or the bank accounts in any of your names. You won't find the why there. In fact, You won't find the why anywhere but in the mirror. Wait, Myrtle, did the preacher just say mirror? Yes, I did. You heard me. Some of us never even look at ourselves. Not really. We look close enough to check our teeth or comb our hair or straighten our tie, but we don't look deeply. Not really, because we can't manage to answer the question of why. Why would God pursue me? Why would God pursue you? How dare God pursue us? He must have no idea who I really am, what I've done or what I've seen or who I've wounded, who I'm not, what I've left undone. God is no seer if he follows me because if he could actually see me, he'd be ashamed of who I am. I'm describing your inner narrative, my inner voice. And yet, he pursues recklessly. Endlessly. In and out of relationships that almost make sense, that almost fulfill, that almost touch us deeply enough to be loved. In and out of churches that almost see us, that almost celebrate who we are, the full being, that almost set us free in and out again and again till we convince ourselves that we have to become the finders, the seekers, the pursuers of truth? Why is it that the very idea of his extravagant love makes us fight, makes us resist and push back, and yet he pursues recklessly, endlessly? Might I suggest that this is the hardest part of true faith? allowing ourselves to actually be found. It's not getting our heads around complex theology or understanding church doctrine or selling out to the mission of the church in the world. It's not even the terrifying process of deconstructing our faith. It's not seeking or finding or creating anything. The hardest part is simply accepting the fact that we are what heaven pursues. We are not the seekers, y'all. We are the sought. And if there was any better news to deliver to you today in August, I would have. But this is as good as it gets. This single moving part is what the gospel is actually made of. Don't add anything unnecessary. This is all we need. We sang a song before the sermon. And it's a song that Cory Asbury wrote and then got a little heat for. I don't know if you know the story. The reckless love of God. And he was taken to task by theologians of his time and space, and they said, how dare you describe a God who has such needs and could recklessly love anything? And Corey gently pushes back with Luke 15 and says, it's the God I see. I identify with this song because it wasn't that many years ago that I wrote a song that people were singing all over, and then I was called to account theologically for a song that didn't mention the name of Jesus. This story's for you, Jerry and Pepe and Qualo, and all you that know what I'm talking about. I'll tell you that story some other time taken to task by describing a God so extravagantly in love with the lost object. You guys, it's the whole gospel in a single idea. The answer to the why is simply because he said so. Why are you so desirable? Because he's been in pursuit every moment of your existence. Well, I wonder if you can accept a gospel that big today. I wonder if we can accept a gospel that big. Pray with me.